Good morning. How's everybody doing today? Good morning. What a good day. What a really good day. Well, today I want to talk, last, last week's message was called Cut the Anchors. And we, we really launched from Hebrews chapter 6, verses 18, 19, and 20. But then transitioned back into Acts versus, uh, chapter 27, where Paul was on, on the ship. And that how they had a word to go forward, the sailors put down anchors. And that the things in life that anchor us to the world, when it says in Hebrews, it says that the hope that is set before us is both sure and steadfast, and that it is an anchor for the soul, that it goes behind the veil into the very presence of God, that, that the thing that anchors us in what's actually real, although things on earth seem real, reality is actually in the eternal realm, or reality is in the heavenly realm. And when, when we, it says, when we grab hold of that hope, the hope that enters the veil, the hope that's sure and steadfast, the hope that is an anchor for the soul. It actually anchors our, our mind, the way we think. It anchors our actions, or I mean our attitudes, anchors our decisions, so that we're making right decisions, thinking right thoughts, having right feelings that line up with God's word. And so today I want to kind of continue that. Uh, I believe last week when I uh, read through chapter uh, 6, verse 20, and it says that where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, uh, made a high priest uh, forever after the order of Melchizedek. I said, you know, one day I'll come back to that, and I didn't think it would be this week, but today's that day. So Melchizedek is a very mysterious uh, person in the Bible. He's only mentioned in the Old Testament twice. He appears in Genesis chapter 14, which we, we read a few minutes ago, or I told you the story about when he meets Abraham. That's about 2,000 years before Jesus came to the earth. And then about 1,000 years after that, David, in Psalm 110, verse 4, it says, you have sworn, he's speaking to God, he says, you've sworn and will not relent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So David actually prophetically declares that Melchizedek is a type and shadow of Christ, if not uh, a very uh, pre-incarnate appearance of Christ himself. And, and so then we hear nothing. We hear nothing about Melchizedek until the book of Hebrews. And as I said last week, I believe Paul's the writer of it. Uh, I believe Paul had a, a revelation on righteousness more than anybody. But if you don't believe that, that's okay. You can say what you want. doesn't matter. Irrelevant. Um, and in chapter 5, when he first kind of mentions this guy, Melchizedek, he says this. He says, I have many things to tell you about Melchizedek, but you're dull of hearing. You're actually not mature enough to handle them. He said, for the time comes when you should be able to eat strong meat, uh, you, you need to eat milk. So if you brought your baby bottle today, we're not sucking on a bottle. All right, we're going to eat some steak today. So Melchizedek is a very, uh, it's a mature subject. It's, a, it's what Paul, or the writer of Hebrews, calls strong meat. And then for whatever reason, a couple chapters later, he must change his mind, and he says, oh, well, I might as well tell you about him anyway. So there's a whole lot in chapter 7, especially, about Melchizedek. And I'm going to jump around, because to read it, it would be very difficult to read it. Uh, it um, it's a long passage. I would encourage you to read it. But I want to talk today about a better hope. A better hope. It says in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 19, it says, 
that uh, a better hope was introduced by which we draw near to God. A better hope was introduced by which we draw near to God. So what, when we think of better, what, 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 what does better mean? Better means uh, of superior quality. Uh, it's, it exceeds that which, it, uh, which came before it, right? So if there's three things, we might think of what? Good, better, and best. But if there's only two things being compared, it's really just good and better. And, and so the writer here says, he says, in comes a better, it's superior in quality, it's more profitable, it, it, it's more advantageous for you, and it's, it's, it's a, a better hope. And so last week when we talked about hope, hope is just this. Hope is having a confident expectation that you're positive, you're expecting something good, a confident expectation of some future good. So it hasn't happened yet. Paul said in Romans 8, he says, why would you hope for that which you see? So if you can see it, if you physically have it, if I have a phone in my hand, I don't need to hope for this phone. He said, so if you have it, there's no need to hope for it. He says, why does one hope for that which he sees? But if we don't see it, we wait and we earnestly persevere until we receive it. And so hope, although you, when you hope for something... I like to think of hope like this. Hope is like seeing with your heart what you can't see with your eyes. Uh, because what happens is, although I can't physically see something, as I read God's word, I begin to get an image of it. I begin to see it in my heart. I begin to see it in my spirit. And God be able, get, begins to give revelation and says that faith is the substance of things hoped for. So if I have no hope, my faith doesn't really have substance to grab to. So hope is truly important. Paul said the three things remain, it says faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. And so even in that order, faith, hope, and love, hope is actually, if, if, if love is the, the highest, hope actually sits a little above faith. So hope is important. So he says by uh, a better hope was introduced whereby we draw near to God. Now, has anybody ever heard the verse from James chapter 4, 7? It says, I'm sure you have. You guys finish it, all right? Draw near to God and he'll do what? Okay, we've heard that. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. How do you do that? So what I hear a lot of times when people talk about drawing near to God, I hear methods, right? And methods aren't bad. So, so when people say, well, you draw near to God, you need to spend more time in prayer. You probably need to spend more time in Bible study, meditation. Uh, maybe in, prayer involves fasting. Uh, may, you know, whatever it is, maybe... Uh, uh, if you read a book by Brother Lawrence from hundreds of years ago, he talks about practicing the presence of God. So there's all these methods that can be used to draw near to God. However, this, if we let Bible interpret Bible, this says what? It says that it was introduced a better hope, and what does that better hope do? Through which we draw near to God. And so I think of it like this. So all those things, although they're, they're good and we need them, think of them like uh, modes of transportation, if you will. So maybe prayer would be like a, a, a motorcycle, right? And, and maybe uh, fasting and prayer might be like a car. And, and Bible study, maybe that's like a, a pedal bike, whatever it is. There, there are ways to get to a destination. There are methods, modes of transportation. But what good is the mode if you don't know the way? 
Like if I don't know the way that I get there, why does it matter what method I use? If I say I want you to go to the Constitution Park and you take off toward hills, wait, what's well, not hills anymore? What is it? I, I, just, I, I just dated myself. So I grew up on wimp, I grew up on wimpy drive, so you know this is this is my, my hood. I, I pedaled around here, I rode my bike around here. So Hills was Hills was my jam, you know, the, the ICs and, and all that you get there. But yeah, but if I don't know the way to the Constitution Park, I could pedal my bike all day long in the wrong direction. And so while methods are important. If we don't go through the better hope to get there, we're either going to end up at less than God designed for you or maybe in a different destination altogether. And so today I want to just release a little bit about this better hope. I want to give you three things today. I haven't had a three-point message in probably two months. Uh, I've had a lot of one-pointers. But today, three things we're going to look at. Uh, I want to look at, they all start with P. I want to look at peace. I want to look at perfection. And then the last thing, it's one of those words nobody likes to use. I may have to think of a, 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 an easier word. Yeah, I'll just go with what I said. Perpetuity. Anybody know perpetuity? I think of perpetual. How about that? Peace for perfection and perpetuity. And we're going to talk about that when we get to the end. So I want to look at these things on, uh, on Melchizedek today and just draw out a few things for you because I want you to understand, and, and really what the writer's doing, he's, he's looking at the better way is the way of grace. Jesus is the person of grace. And so when Jesus comes, he brings in a whole new order. He does things a whole different completely different than what had been done the prior 1,500 years under the law. And so grace is way better than the law. And so we're going to look at a couple things, these three things today. So it says this in verse 18 of Hebrews 6. It says, to lay hold of the hope set before us, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So think about this. When Jesus, it says that he entered the veil, uh, he actually entered the very presence of God. Remember, God dwelt in the tabernacle on earth. He dwelt in the Holy of Holies. And so that was a copy of the true one in heaven. It says Jesus actually entered uh, in there. And he entered as our high priest. But before that, do you see that one word, forerunner? See, that's the only time that's used in the Bible. The forerunner is somebody, it's actually a military word, and it, was, it would be like somebody, you'd be like a scout. You remember, um, you remember um, in the Old Testament when, when uh, they, Moses sent the scouts into the, uh, into the uh, promised land? Yeah, so they sent 12 out. So what did they do? They went ahead and they scouted things out with the intention of everybody following them in there. And so this word forerunner means this. It's a military word that means one sent out for observation with the intention of everyone else following. And so, so often we think of Jesus being in this holy of holies in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. And the fact that there's a forerunner, the implication is that there's also needs to be and should be after runner. 
Because why in the world would Jesus be a forerunner if there weren't supposed to be anybody to follow him in there? And so that Jesus went, it says he did it for us. He went in for us. He paved a way for us so that we too could lay hold of that hope that's set before us, so that we too could, could lay hold of that anchor that goes behind the veil of the very presence of God and enter the same presence that he did. And it says that he became a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So here's where we want to go. I'm going to skip the next two slides because I talked about those in, uh, um, in during communion. So chapter 7, here's, here's the thing on peace. So the unique thing about Melchizedek, he was, uh, he was a king, and he was also a priest. That didn't happen. Obviously, Jesus is also a king and a priest, king of kings, lord of lords. He's our high priest. And so it says this. It says in verse 7, 1, it says, This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. So I'm going to pause right there because what happens a lot of times is when we have an old covenant mentality, under the old covenant, if I wanted to be blessed, what did I have to do? I had to obey. And I not just had to obey, I had to obey perfectly. Deuteronomy 28, it's about 65 verses, but the first 15 say this, says, all these blessings will come upon you if you obey all the things that are written in this law. So that the only way that you could really be blessed is perfect obedience. Guess what none of us have? Guess what Jesus had? Perfect obedience. So what happened under the old covenant was this. Let's just say this is a blessing, right? Phones are blessings. Under the old covenant, if I perfectly obeyed, guess what I got? I got blessed. And if I didn't perfectly obey, actually Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 16 through 60-something, there's this big long list of curses that says, if you do not obey all the things written in this law, all these curses will come upon you. And so if I didn't obey perfectly, I didn't get blessed. And so under the law obedience preceded blessing. Under grace, now this was written 500 years before the law came when Abraham met Melchizedek. Under grace, blessing precedes obedience. A lot of people don't understand that because a lot of people are still working to have perfect obedience to get God to bless them. Paul says in Ephesians 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has, past tense, has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in high places in Christ Jesus. And so that the blessing has already taken place. See, what happened in this, and, and, what if I, and we're not going to talk about tithing today, but what happened, it says that, that Aber, Melchizedek blessed Abraham, and then... Abraham hiccuped. No, he didn't. There that was. Bless you. It says that he blessed Abraham, and then with no law to do so, it says Abraham gave him a tenth or a tithe of everything. Under the law, I have to tithe to get blessed. And then it says in, in Hebrews 7, it says that 
A change in the priesthood requires a change in the law, and that word actually means to be transposed. And so what used to be over here is now like this. And so that under before the law, it was blessing, and then obedience was the response to blessing. And then under the law, obedience was the requirement to get blessed. And then Jesus came, and it went back to the way it was before the law, which was blessing first, and then obedience as a response to the fact that he's already blessed me. That's a different way to live. See, but if we're living and doing things in an effort to get God to do something on my behalf, we're living under a legalistic mindset. What we start from, we start from victory. We start from blessing. We start from the fact that everything he ever did and will do, he, he poured out 2,000 years ago. All healing, all forgiveness, all everything provided for in the sacrifice of Jesus once and for all time. And because of that, man, I want to I obey him. I want to live for him. I want to do everything right because he's already done everything for me apart from my performance whatsoever. So he says, this Melchizedek, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness and then king of peace. So think about this. So it says, it says that he is the king of what city? Salem. So Salem was the, the original or old city of the city Jerusalem. It used to be called Salem. Salem is the word peace. You ever hear the word shalom? Shalom. Peace, shalom means nothing missing. It means everything complete, whole, sound, nothing missing, nothing broken. And it says that he was the king of peace. But before he was the king of peace, it says that he was something else. And what was that? All right, I'm going to read it to you. First, everybody say first. Being translated, what? So a lot of times when people read the Bible, they'll look at, they'll look at Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. It says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for what? Righteousness. Come on. But I, and they'll say, well, that was the first time righteousness appeared in the Bible. It actually wasn't. Righteousness was in the name of Melchizedek. See, the name Melchizedek is made up of two Hebrew words, melech, which means king, and sedek. Anybody got to guess what sedek means? Righteousness. So his name, which actually meant something, was melech, king, sedek, righteousness. So it says that first and foremost, he was the king of righteousness. And because he was the king of righteousness, he was also the king of the place where he lived or his location, which tells me that your name and your nature precedes the place that you live. And when you're actually made righteous, you'll actually experience peace. Paul says it in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. He says, having been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God. The, new, uh, the NET says, since we have... So a lot of people don't know justified. It means declared righteous. That once you've been declared righteous by faith, you have peace with God. See, righteousness is not all the things that the law required. It's not right doing. 
It's not doing the right stuff. It's being right. It's that you became a new creation, that you're new on the inside, that that you can stand completely before a holy, righteous God, innocent, guiltless, and faultless. Now, would it make a difference if I'm going to draw near to God that I know that I've been made righteous? Because if I'm still over here trying to work for it, guess what's in my mind? A big question. Hmm, did I do enough? Do I deserve it? Did I do enough to enter his presence? Do I need to confess? What do I need to do? No, I need to know that I've been made righteous because once I've been made righteous, I have what? Peace. Like there's nothing missing. God's not mad at you. God's not angry with you because he looks at you the way he looks at Jesus. See, it says in Isaiah 32, verses 15 through 17. So if you read Isaiah 32, the verse 1 says this, Isaiah 32, 1, it says, a king will reign in righteousness. And then the rest of the chapter, the next 14 verses, start to talk about all the consequences of complacency. Like for not doing this, here's all the bad stuff. And so Isaiah a lot of time would tell bad, and then he would, he would prophesy what's going to happen when the Messiah comes. So in verse 15, he says, until the Spirit is poured out upon us from where? From on high. Has the Spirit been poured out upon us from on high? Yes. On the day of Pentecost, Peter stood up and said, these men are not drunk. This is that which was spoken about by the prophet Joel. It said that that Jesus has received the promise of the Father, which he has poured out upon us. That the Holy Spirit has been poured out. That, that, so that the things that were written in the few prior verses now are different once the Holy Spirit's been poured out, once Jesus has gone to the cross, once He's resurrected, once He's released His Spirit, because nothing changes apart from His Holy Spirit. See, once you believe, it's the Holy Spirit that makes that change in you. See, He's the one that makes you new on the inside. So He says this. He says, And the wilderness... Until the the Holy Spirit is poured upon upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is counted as a forest. We're going to come back to that. And justice, that word justice is the same as the word judgment. I want you to remember that. Justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness will remain in the fruitful field. So think about this. He says, when the Holy Spirit comes, that which was barren that which was desert, that which would, couldn't produce anything in and of itself, that thing, that wilderness, then when the Holy Spirit is poured out, the wilderness in you becomes a fruitful field. Not because you did anything, but because He did it. And He said that the fruitful field is then counted as a forest. That word counted is the same word that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. See, even though you're producing fruit in quantity now, God sees you the way he designed you. He sees you as a forest that's mass-producing fruit. Even though you might only be producing a little now, he said, because my Holy Spirit's already been poured on you and already working in you, the fruit you're producing, I'm already seeing you down the road as a mass producer of fruit, and I'm going to credit you as being a forest. And then he goes on to say, he said then, that look what dwells in the wilderness. Judgment dwells where? Justice 
same word as judgment, will dwell where? In the wilderness, and righteousness remains where? In the fruitful field. What have I become? I've become a fruitful field. See, the unregenerate me, before I knew Jesus, when I was barren, when I was broken, when I was, was desolate, when I had nothing that I could offer him, Jesus had all the judgment poured out on him so I could be made new. Once I was made new, and he now counts me, what was wilderness before is now a fruitful field. Judgment stays there. It was settled at the cross. Righteousness lives here. Righteousness remains here. And it says the work of righteousness will be what? Peace. The effect of righteousness will be tranquility and assurance for a few days. <laughs> Forever. See, when I know that I've been made righteous, I have peace. And when I have peace, I can actually walk into the throne room of God because I know that things are right. See, a lot of times we think we've got to get everything cleaned up to get in the presence, but it's actually the presence that you need to clean you up. See, you need the Holy Spirit. You need His presence in your life, working on you, continuing to take you from a fruitful field to the thing that He's already called you, which is the forest. You need that. Don't ever let the issues in your life keep you from God. See, Jesus has already settled it. Jesus has already made you righteous. When you need help, it says, let us come to the throne of grace in a time that we need help. Right? You don't go when you're clean. You go when you need help. Because you can enter. You can enter because the forerunner already made it right for you. And then when you need to get cleaned up, you got an issue in your life. you got a sin you just can't break. The Holy Spirit can break it. He will continue to make you more like Jesus on the outside. See, on the inside, you're already like Him. You've already been made right on the inside. The second thing, perfection. Any perfect people here? Oh, come on. Come on. We got peace. I'm going to tell you this. You're perfectly perfect. You're perfectly perfect. I didn't miss say that. You are perfectly perfect. If perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there when another priest should arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? Okay, so I'm going to go from 11 down to 18 and 19. Um, Next slide. So it says this. If the old covenant could make you perfect, right, why would we need a new one? Like, that's, it, it would have been cruel to send Jesus to do what he did if the old covenant could bring perfection to your life. If perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, then why did another one come in? Verse 18 says this. For on the one hand, everybody say one hand. one hand. On the one hand, I broke the verses up like this because I think they were split wrong, but that's my opinion. It says, on the one hand, there's an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness, for the law made nothing, what? 
Perfect. It says, on the one hand, there's an annulling. Now, some of your translations will say, set aside. Right? Anybody have a translation that says set aside? Almost all of them do. It's a terrible translation. Here's why. If I set something aside, guess what it still is? It's still there. This is the word annul. It means to cancel. It means to void. It's only used twice in the Bible. The other time is in Hebrews 9.26. It says, by one sacrifice, he took away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, what did Jesus do? Did he take away sin or did he just set it aside for a few minutes? He took it away. And so in the same way that Jesus took sin away, the old law was annulled or taken away. It says, if one hand, on one hand there's an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness, it's weak, it's got no strength, and it's unprofitable. It doesn't do you any good. See, it's like this. Like, anybody ever go to a doctor and the doctor diagnoses you with a problem? I, okay. All right, who hasn't ever been diagnosed by a doctor? Anybody? Okay, has anybody ever had a doctor diagnose you? Yes. How many times does the doctor that diagnoses you say, hey, I can only tell you what's wrong with you, but I can't fix you. You need to go pay another deductible and see another doctor. Right? See, that's, what, that's like the law. The law is like your primary care physician. Like you go to him, and all he can do is say, yeah, you got an issue. You got to go pay somebody else because I'm only, I'm only authorized to diagnose it. And that's all the law could do. The law is like your PCP. Not, not that you take, but your, your primary care physician. So the law can only diagnose the problem. Only grace can fix the problem. Because if perfection were available under the Levitical priesthood, then why did another priest need to rise after the order of Melchizedek? It would have been worthless. It would have been pointless. If your PCP could fix your problem, there wouldn't be a need for a specialist. Because be pointless. On the other, everybody say this. On the other hand, I feel like this old Randy Travis song. On the other hand, anybody, I'm really dating myself today. Guys, probably never even heard of Randy Travis. Yeah, he was, that was an old country guy. It says, on the other hand, there is the bringing in. This word bringing in, interesting word. It's the word bringing in is the word used to introduce the new wife that replaces the old wife. <laughs> it's only used one time in the Bible. Imagine that. So if I only set my old wife aside, could I really bring in a new wife? No, she had to be done away with. Like, I got no chance of getting a new wife if Kristen's just setting aside somewhere. Like, that's not going to go. Like, if I went to Laura and said, you want to be my wife? By the way, Kristen's just sitting aside right over here. That, that will not go well. She's got to be put away. She's got to be annulled. And it says, the bringing in, the introduction of the new wife, because the old wife has been divorced. She's out of the picture. See, Jesus doesn't believe in polygamy. He's not going to marry you to two people at the same time. And so he gets rid of the one so that 
so that you can be married to the new man. It says, on the other hand, the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Next slide. It says, the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with the same sacrifices make those which continually, uh, year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered for the worshipers once pers- uh, purified would have no more consciousness of sin. So what's that saying? Hebrews 10, 1 and 2. It says this. It says that every time they'd bring a sacrifice to the old the, the, the tabernacle, every time a sacrifice was made, what did it remind you of? Your sin. And it said, if that could actually fix and purify your conscience, if it actually took it away instead of just covering it up, which is all it did, then there would have been no need for another one. But what happened? Sacrifice, remembrance of sin. Sacrifice, remembrance of sin. Sacrifice, remembrance of sin. Guess what you remember? Sin. See, the strength of sin is the law. That word in 1 Corinthians 15 is actually dunamis. The miracle working power of sin is the law. So when the law tells you not to do something, it actually stirs that thing up in you to do it. That's that's true. But when you have grace, see, grace actually empowers you to not sin. Grace is not an excuse to sin ever. And if you ever think it is, you don't understand it. But what it does, grace actually raises the bar. It actually sets a higher standard. And then not only raises the bar, but actually enables you to do the very thing that it commands. It says, if that could have made you perfect, but it couldn't. Because all it did was remind you of how bad you are. It's your primary care guy. Oh, you're sick. Oh, you're sick. Can't do nothing about it, but you're sick. All right, good news. Hebrews 10, 14 says this. By one offering, say this, he perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Two things here. Perfected is actually in the perfect tense, which means that it's one done once and for all time, never to be repeated again. So that by one sacrifice, when you accept Jesus, it says that he perfected you forever. Those who are being sanctified, that is in the present tense, which means we all got a little room to grow. Right? We're not there yet. We're still being conformed to the image of Jesus. See, what happens a lot of times is when we say, well, we say, well, there was only one perfect person, and you ain't him. Right? Who are we talking about? Jesus? Well, there's no perfect people. You know that. See, what happens when we relate to that thought process, we give our excuse, ourselves an excuse to live less than God designed us to live. See, when we talk about, well, you know, I'm not perfect, we're relating to the natural and not the spiritual. And I get that, like, well, that sounds arrogant. I'm confident that Jesus has perfected me. Do I have a way to go? Yeah, that's the job of the Holy Spirit to continually to sanctify me, to make me more holy, to continue to make me into his image. 
But the settled fact in heaven for all time is that I have been perfected, made complete. I am completely complete, and I am perfectly perfect because of his one sacrifice. See, if, he needed to make, if, if it would have taken two sacrifices of Jesus or three sacrifices of Jesus, it wouldn't have been perfect. But because he did it one and done, perfected for all time. See, I'm going to give you another verse in Hebrews chapter 12 so you won't think uh, it says this. It says, uh, and so he's talking about, he said, you haven't come to Mount Sinai, which is where the law was given. You haven't come to Mount Sinai that has smoke and, and burning and all that. He says, instead, you've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem, myriads of angels, a festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn, whose names have been written in heaven, to judge who is God, to the spirits of just men, or this translation says, of righteous people made what? Perfect. So here's what you have to see. You have to see yourself the way God sees you. God sees you in the spirit, not in your physical body. Paul says, I no longer see people after the flesh. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 16, it says, we knew Jesus that way once, but not any longer. See, you have to see yourself the way God sees you, that on the inside, you've been made perfectly righteous, you have peace with God, and that you've been perfected forever. And when you see yourself by the way you're living, you're never going to have the confidence to enter the presence of God because you're going to think you're not good enough. You've been perfected forever. Now, I know you're, I know you're not perfect. I'm not. On the outside. You could look at me and find flaws all day long. But are we relating to ourselves and other people based on the flesh or after the spirit? God sees me after the spirit. He sees you after the spirit. Why do you think he says those that worship me must worship in flesh and truth? Spirit and truth. You have to worship God in spirit. He sees you on who you are in the spirit. Say this. I'm perfectly perfect. So you've got to get com comfortable saying that. It's not, it's not arrogant because none of us did it on our own. It's, see, it's actually when you say, well, um, you know, nobody perfect. You know, we all make mistakes. I get it. But you're giving yourself an out. If God's standard is this, why would I settle for less? See, what's going to happen if I keep confessing this is all, the, this is all I'm good, good enough to do? That's the level of holiness I'll settle out at. I should be striving for the thing that he's created to me to be, that I've been perfected forever, and my life should show it. All right, I'm going to wrap this up real quick been made righteous, you have peace with God, you've been perfected forever, perfectly, completely whole in his eyes. And finally it says this, it says, and it's far more evident, in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of what? Endless life. So how often do we think about this, and I'm guilty of this too, we think, when we think of, now this word power is dunamis, miracle working power, we think of resurrection power. How many people think of resurrection power when we think of power? I do. Because we read Ephesians. Ephesians says this. It says, what is the greatness of his power toward us who believe 
that he worked in Christ when he did what? Raised him from the dead and, here's the big thing, and did what? Seated him at the right hand of the Father. Far above all principality, power, dominion in this world and in the one to come. See, resurrection power is a thing. It's powerful. But how about the power that keeps Jesus alive forever? See, the power that seated him is the power that he comes in the power of an endless life. See, I love resurrection power. But then there's also the same power that keeps him alive for all of eternity. Like his life cannot die. He's not going to need resurrected again. The next verse say this. It says, also there were many priests because they were prevented from death by continu- from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. So here's what happened. Every time a priest would die, priesthood changes. Priest would die, priesthood changes. Guess what happened? Jesus is not going to die, so guess what doesn't change? Priesthood never changes. So the way that it is now is the way that it's going to be for all of eternity. It says, therefore, he's also able to save to the uttermost those who come to him through him, since he does always live to make intercession for them. It says that he is able, because he lives forever, He's come in the power of an endless life. Like nothing will change the things that we just talked about. See, the the job of the priest, the priest represent the people to God. Right? In the Old Testament, the priest represented the people to God. The prophet represented God to the people. If my priest is perfect and his sacrifice is perfect, And that's never going to change because he is seated based on the power of an endless life. And it says, because of all that, he's able. He has the ability to save, sozo, deliver, restore, heal, reconcile, all those things. He is able to save to the uttermost. See, a lot of times people say, well, it's, it doesn't say he can save you from the uttermost, which he can, because no matter what situation you're in, he can, he can turn it around. It says he saves you to the uttermost. It's another word for completeness or perfection. He literally, perfectly, perfectly saves you. But he can only do it, go back to the slide, it says he can save to the uttermost those who do what? Verse 25. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. There's no other way. There is no other way to the Father except through Jesus. And that does, that's just not for for to be made righteous. It's just not to become a new creation. 
There's one way to the Father to be healed. There's one way to the Father to be delivered. There's one way to the Father to be forgiven of sin. All those things. See, Paul says that, that the same way that you received Christ, so walk in Him. That the same way that I accepted Jesus the day that I first got saved is the same way that I approach Him every other day of my life. All right, let me just close this. We'll skip that one. Let's go to the last one. Because of your faith in Jesus, Whitney, come on up. You have total peace with God. You're perfectly perfect. And Jesus is perpetually praying for you on your behalf. I don't know what I just did here. Sorry. See, there's no, there's no reason to wait. There's no reason to wait. See, draw near to God. As I draw near to Curtis, guess what happened? The distance just got smaller. Draw near to God. Draw near to God. Because he brought in a better hope, a new and living way a better hope through which we draw near to God. Know that the first debt, when you accept Jesus, He makes you righteous. He's the King of righteousness. Because you've been made righteous, you have peace with God. That if the old covenant couldn't do anything to make you perfect or else it wouldn't have been replaced, but He's perfected you forever. Have confidence in that. And know that because He has an endless life, that He is forever making intercession. He's praying for you on your behalf. Like, if, if I knew Curtis was praying for me, why wouldn't I want to join up with him? Why wouldn't I? Like, I don't have to worry that he's mad at me if he's praying for me. Jesus is praying for you. You might have that one thing you think, he can't fix it. He's already paid for it. He's making intercession for you. He's interceding. There's one man between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. See, a lot of times we think there's something between us and God. (laughs) There's only one thing, it's Jesus. He's the only thing between you and God. And he's a forerunner. He's already been there. He's wanting you to follow him. He's wanting you to step into the things that he's called you to do. He's equipped you. He's completed you. Let's pray. Stand, let's stand up for me if you would.